Lord, you drive. You are my portion, O Lord. You, I have promised to obey your words. I have sought your face with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. I have considered my ways and have turned my steps to your statutes. I will hasten and not delay to obey your commands. Though the wicked bind me with ropes, I will not forget your law. At midnight I rise to give you thanks for your righteous laws. I am a friend to all who fear you, to all who follow your precepts. The earth is filled with your love, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. Oh, a couple of my favorite verses in the Bible there, especially uh, number 62. At midnight I will rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous judgments. And I tell you, every, every night I'm up three or four times and I try always to... Uh, acknowledge the Lord when I do wake up. You know, they, they say as you get older, oh, that was in Ecclesiastes, our sermon yes. last week. As you get oh, older, you tend to oh, rise. Oh, with Eutychius? What's when that? He fell asleep and, and died, he raised him up at midnight. Who's that? Eutychus. Yeah, oh, Eutychus. Yes, yes. Well, he fell out a window, so, oh, boy. Um, now, if you say anything in the class, you just want to make sure that you say it loud enough because... Um, this uh, microphone has a, a compressor on it, so it, it dulls out any sounds that aren't relevant. And uh, so if you say anything, just speak up loud and uh, uh, full participation here. But um, uh, let's see, we have uh, prayer for um, Linda, who's not feeling so hot today. And um, I, boy, I got just all kinds of emails and a couple letters in the mail of people with uh, you know, troubles and uh, trials, and uh, one lady in particular emailed, or I'm sorry, wrote a letter, uh, and um, I responded to it today, but she went down a whole list of, you know, pray for this person that uh, needs salvation and this person, so I've been walking around talking to the Lord about that, but um, anyway, is there any specific prayer needs that we have besides Linda? Oh, look at you, and you had your last radiation, was it today? Well, actually, the machines went down, so now it's Monday. Oh, no. All right. Well, one more radiation, and then we want nothing but good news, okay? All right. Praise the Lord. Well, we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the wonderful chance to come and meet together and to uh, share in your precious word. And uh, thank you for those that are here and uh, any that are online right now with us uh, participating as we thank you for them and uh, ask that maybe there'll be something that will bless them tonight and uh we thank you for the book of romans which is such a precious word and uh we just uh, ask that you would help us to handle your word properly and not to deviate from the sound precepts that it contains in this world where uh theology does not seem to matter anymore we would pray that we would be an exception to that um, there are many faithful churches around the world that are holding to your word but there are many many more that are not and uh lord we just thank you for this opportunity and once again and uh, we commit this uh, hour, hour and a half to you, and uh, we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, now, we did not, just so you know, um, Sergio sent in a question last week, and uh, so I never finished the notes on verse 1-7. So we can't get into verse 1-8 until we finish the notes on verse 1-7, and I'm almost down with them. Um, I'm going to start the, par the paragraph that I was reading again, but if you would read 1-7 again. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so um, I'm going to just start back at the top of the paragraph that I finished with. Um, Paul extends this wonderful blessing on behalf of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's when we got into talking about the Trinity, the nature of Christ, the deity of Christ. Um, and uh, then the question came in, which we followed up with. 
but it is a greeting from the eternal God, both the unseen Father and His Son, who reveals the Father to us. All right, God the Father cannot be seen. He's unknowable except as He is revealed in the present. Uh, you can't look forward into the future and know the future. I made that parallel there, that God the Father, it, the Bible explicitly says it several times in several ways. He dwells in an unapproachable light that no man has seen or can see, and uh, other verses of that nature. Speaking of God, and so God is revealing himself through the person of Jesus Christ. And we went through uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, I think, and uh, I don't think I mentioned it, but Hebrews uh, chapter 1 speaks of uh, the same thing. It speaks of the... Uh, let me go there really quickly, because I don't think I cited that last week. And uh, Hebrews... Let me see if I can find this really, really quickly. Um, Colossians, John... Oops, going the wrong way there, Charlie. It's after... Hebrews. There it is, okay. In Hebrews chapter 1, the brightness of... Hang on, I'm going to get this right here. It says... Um, God, who at various times and in various ways spoken the past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds. Okay? Christ is how creation came about. God working through Christ. The Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, through him all things were made, nothing was made that has been made. Uh, nothing was made... Let me. I blew that, and I don't want to blow that. So um, actually, I can say it in Greek, but I can't say it in English. Uh, okay. Um, all things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. Okay, got it. Um, and then it goes on in Hebrews. It says, "Who, meaning Christ, being the brightness of his glory, meaning God the Father, God, um, and the express image of his person. Christ is the express image of." The Godhead. The Godhead is revealed through him. How are we doing tonight? Good, good, good. good. And, uh, and upholding all things by the power of his word, Christ is right now, not only do we have creation, we have God the creator, but we also have God the sustainer. All things are being held together. This is Colossians and it's Hebrews. All things are being held together right now by the spoken word of God. If he determined that he wasn't going to hold them all together anymore, everything would simply go back to nothingness. God created from nothing, everything would return to nothingness. All right, upholding all things by the power of his word, when he had purged uh, himself, purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So Christ is there in the, uh, the seat of power right now. All things are being held together by him. He is God and he is revealing the God that we cannot see, that we cannot perceive ceaselessly and endlessly. This is what Christ does for us. So, having said that, um, uh, throughout Paul's letters, as uh, with the entire Bible, these are my notes. I'm just going from my notes here. So, um, the deity of Christ is a concept and a precept which cannot be missed. It is. It's ignored. It's overlooked. It's denied. Jehovah's Witnesses deny the deity of Christ. But it is the very heart of what God has done for the reconciliation of the people of the world. If we don't have Christ, there is no reconciliation for us. And this is what God has done. You know, you go back to, this is why I tell Jehovah's Witnesses when they come to the door. They knock on the door and they don't on my door because they have, I have signs all over Jesus Christ is uh, Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I got them all over my house. So, um, but they will go to the house next door and they'll put little things, which is on the same property, in the door there. And if I see them, which I saw one just recently, 
I will say, well, why don't you go to Isaiah and compare what Isaiah says about Jehovah and then go in the New Testament and see what the New Testament says about Jesus, because it repeats it. I am the Lord God, there is no other. My glory I will not share with another in the New Testament. And we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And it says, I am the Redeemer, there is no other. Jesus Christ is the Redeemer. I am the Savior, there is no other. Jesus Christ is the Savior. On and on, Isaiah is saying that the Lord of the Old Testament is these things. And then in the New Testament, what does it say? His reward is with him. What does it say about Jesus on the last page of the Bible? His reward is with him. Everything about I so that's one thing you can do if they come to your door and they start telling you that Jesus Christ is not God tell them to go to Isaiah and learn theology because they do not do these comparative studies they just go through uh, minimal Bible studies and they are very well indoctrinated in the few uh, things that they do know and so challenging challenging a Jehovah's Witness it's not always a good thing to do. And I'm talking about you giving them your idea and then them coming back because they're so well-trained that you're, you're going to look dumb if you try to have a, you know, a, a argument with them. What you do is you just tell them, why don't you go check this out? Send them to Isaiah, send them to the New Testament, tell them to highlight in blue every time that the Lord says something about himself in Isaiah, and then go to the New Testament and do the same thing and see how many blues match up. It's just a continuous stream of them. Um, every knee shall bow uh, to um, uh, Jehovah in the Old Testament. Same verses applied to Jesus in the New. Again and again and again. I, we could go on with that all night. Anyway, um, uh, okay, it is a very heart of God of what he has done for reconciliation of the people of the world. And then I wrote them down for you because you know my handwriting is bad and when I'm here, I, I, uh, I uh, uh, so what I'll do is I will stand up so that the people on uh, the... Uh, <coughs> streaming can see what I've written on the board, but I've got them here a little more detail, but the substance of them is here, is um, in these, just the seven opening verses, if you consider what we've gone through in just the first seven verses of Romans, okay, in these seven opening verses, enough theology has been presented to open the minds of the people of the world to the immensity of the work of God through Jesus Christ. In seven verses, he has spoken of the surety of the gospel as was revealed through the Old Testament prophets. Okay, the surety of the gospel. All right, the second thing, the inspiration of scripture because of this surety. If this is true, then the inspiration of scripture is taken as an axiom. You see what I'm saying? It doesn't actually say that all scripture is God-breathed, which it does elsewhere in the Bible, but because of this is true, then this must be true. Okay, uh, the third one, the sonship of Jesus Christ is directly identified. Okay? That's, that's a, a precept that you can't miss. And if he is a son, then that means he has a father. Where is Jesus presented as the son of God? What, what, what of the four Gospels presents Jesus as the son of God? Uh, John. John. John, thank you. So J John says he is the son of God. If he is the son of God, then that means that he has a father. If he is the son of man... Which is which gospel? Luke. Luke, okay. Then that means he is a human being. Well, everybody acknowledges that he's a human being, but all of a sudden they say, well, he's not the son of God, which means he's not God, right? Yes, he's called the son of God, but that means something else. Well, if he's the son of man, and Luke is being adamant about that, and then John is saying that he is the son of God, and he's being adamant about that, then we are being given a clue in advance of the human, uh, the human divine nature of Jesus Christ. But people want to dismiss the deity of him and you can't do that once you do that you've gone off of the reservation and you are no longer considered a mainstream christian that's all it, there's no way around that now 
I've said this before, is that you can logically deny something and still be a saved person. Like uh, we talked about Mary as an example. You can say, well, uh, Mary wasn't a virgin, okay? That doesn't mean you're not saved. You're saved by grace through faith when you're presented with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The problem is that when you deny the deity of Christ or when you deny the virgin birth of Mary, the next person will never be saved because logically they need to have all of the the uh, pieces of salvation that are presented to them being proper. And that's why just explaining that Christ came and he died for our sins and that he is uh, capable of doing that and he came out of the grave to prove that is enough to make bring somebody to save, uh, salvation. And that's uh, Romans, we'll get to that in uh, a couple weeks, is Romans uh, 10 verses, uh, what, 9 through 11. Anyway, so uh, salvation is one issue, but going off and getting into heresy is another issue. Heretic can be a saved person. The problem with a heretic is that what he teaches will never get the next person saved. And that's different with bad doctrine. Bad doctrine can be taught, and a person can be saved with bad doctrine. Right? I don't believe in, uh, you know, I, I, I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Okay, so to me, a person that teaches post-tribulation rapture, that's bad doctrine. Can a person be saved and believe in a post-tribulation rapture? Of course he can. So it's not worth arguing with people over it, you just tell them your case and you move on. But people don't want to do that. They start calling people heretics over things which are not heresy. Got to be careful with that. So we have the uh, sonship of Christ. We have the lordship of Christ. Okay, the lordship of Christ means that not only is our, he the son of God, but he is the lord of his church. He is the lord of his people. And I want to get off onto it right now, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this during the book of Romans, but there is a concept known as lordship salvation. Okay, that's John MacArthur teaches this. Uh, you get other people, um, uh, what's his name, Ray Comfort alludes to it. He doesn't specifically say it, but he alludes to it, that you need to make Jesus Christ your Lord in order to be saved. That's putting the cart before the horse. You need to get saved in order to make Christ your Lord. You can't necessarily call somebody Lord until they are your Savior, one thing after another. Anyway, the Lordship of Christ is discussed. The humanity of Christ is discussed, okay? Where was that? That was verse... Um, Hang on. Uh, it was according to the son of David. Um, uh, what was that? Verse 3? Okay, don't have it in front of me, but thank you. Uh, concerning his uh, son, Jesus Christ our Lord, speaking of the deity of Christ, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. So he's saying according to the divine nature, he is born of God. According to the human nature, he is born of the seed of David. The promises to David of 2 Samuel chapter 7 are fulfilled in this person. And he is a person. He is a human being. So he speaks about the, uh, the uh, uh, humanity of Christ. And then we have the deity of Christ, which is uh, mentioned there as well. And then we get into the seventh precept is the death and resurrection of Christ. Okay? That is a point right there of heresy. If you get away from Christ died and all atoning death for our sins, you are a heretic. He died for the sins of all people on this planet. doesn't mean that all people are saved. Potentially, his death will cover all sins of all people. Unless you receive that, you are not saved, and so actually he doesn't save all people. Potentially he does, actually he does not. Okay, The resurrection, if Christ didn't come out of the grave, then somebody tell me, what's the theological ramification of, of Christ not coming out of the grave? We're, We're doomed. We're still in our sins. Right, because so he died for our sins. Unless he came out of the grave to prove that he had no sins, the wages of sin is death. Right? We die because of sin. If he is still in the grave, that means he had his own sins, and therefore he could not have taken away our sins. 
Only a perfect sinless son of God or son of man, a perfectly sinless person, could take away the sins of another. And I brought up the example many times. Babies do not resurrect. Why? Because they have Adam's inherited sin. Okay? You can't go to the statue of Molech, sacrifice a baby, and have your sins atoned for. You just make another sin. You've killed a human being. Christ died for our sins. If you get away from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you're a heretic. Okay? That is a point of heresy. It's a point of doctrine, but a point of heresy. So you've got to be careful with that. And then we have, eight, the unmerited favor and placement of those who have called on Jesus Christ. Imagine all this in seven verses. It's astonishing. And then finally, an introduction into the nature of the Godhead, which we talked about last week for 10 or 15 minutes, by indicating the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Now, that's where we went into the, uh, the, the point about time. Time is one thing, and yet it has three aspects to it. Can we help you, man? <laughs> anyway, that's my life. Um, so, uh, uh, all of these are contained in the first seven verses of Romans. They're not explained in detail, but they are all alluded to. And that's the marvel of those seven verses, is to think, imagine what's coming in the next 16 chapters of the book of Romans, if we can deduce just this from seven verses. So, any questions on any of these? No. Okay, well, then let's go on to verse 1a. And you know, Rhoda, I forgot to tell you, Rhoda says hello to everybody. She's monitoring the, uh, the uh, video because Sergio's up with Band of Brothers. And um, uh, anyway, he's uh, uh, doing that. He's, pre he's presenting Romans 1 through 6 for uh, the people up there. And um, he, uh, uh, she says hello to everybody. And she said, please, let's cover more than one verse today. <laughs> so we need to get through at least verse 1, 8 and verse 1, 9 to make Rhoda happy. Okay, please. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. Okay, verse 1-8. After his greeting, which has gone on for those seven verses, uh, Paul begins the main portion of the epistle with the word first. Okay, there will be in Romans, as in all of Paul's writings, a logical sequence of thought and an articulate presentation of his arguments. Paul is a master of making things fit into a way that you can understand. And yet, 2,000 years later, we are still debating what Paul has said. What did he mean by this? What did he mean by that? And we're still finding things, just like we do with other parts of the Bible, in the construction of Paul's letters that people just suddenly come across that have never been seen before. The entire book of Ephesians makes chiasm after chiasm after chiasm after chiasm all the way through the entire book. We find chiasms all through Paul's writings. If you look at the structure of the uh, pastoral epistles, you know, 1 Timothy, for example, he gives a couple chapters, he goes to a poem, and it's kind of like a, a, a type of poetry, and then he goes back, and so it forms a chiasm over the entire book, and it does this with all of them. Paul's writings are a masterpiece of literature, and that's because... One, he wrote them as a human being, but two, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit as he wrote them. And so you get Paul's flavoring, you get his, his uh, thoughts, and yet at the same time you're getting the work of the Holy Spirit through what Paul has written. It, 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 wonderful stuff. So he's very logical, he's very um, uh, methodical in how he presents his arguments. As he is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, everything he will say is absolute truth in how things are in relation to God. Okay, now this is one thing that I want to talk about because I was doing, you know, I'm going through um, the altar of incense this Sunday. 
okay, which is uh, we're, we're going through the book of Exodus for those of you who don't attend on sun, uh, Sunday. And the book of Exodus right now, the part that we're in is detailing the construction of the implements of the uh, tabernacle and all of the associated rites and rituals with them. One of the things that you will see in the pictures, especially the Ark and the, the Mercy Seat and in the Table of Showbread and each of the implements that has poles in it, and the Altar of Incense is one of them, they describe in minute detail what every single piece of furniture is made of. And one of the things that you will see is an adjective ascribed to certain gold. It'll say, make this of pure gold. And then that adjective is lacking in other areas. And one of the areas it is lacking in is what? Do you, do you remember? I, you're the one that reads these. He, he reads them very carefully and methodically. The poles. The poles that carry these things. Everything in the ark, every single word of how it's described pictures something in redemptive history pertaining to Jesus Christ. Every word of it. The poles. You have four rings that are holding the four uh, corners of, we'll say, the Ark of the Testimony, and then the poles are inserted in there, and the poles are made of the same material, acacia wood, in incorruptible wood, but then they're covered with gold, and it does not have the adjective tahor, or pure in it. And there's a reason why. When there is an omission of something, there's a reason why it is lacking. The four rings on those implements all have uh, all picture the four Gospels. They are what tie Christ into us. In other words, they present Christ to the world. Well, if you have four rings, which are the four Gospels, and that's what's presenting Christ to the world, then you have two poles. What are the poles? What do they represent? You must remember. Old and New Testament. The Old and the New Testament. Okay, They are the Word of God, which makes Christ mobile. As you walk around, that is what makes Christ mobile to the world. So you've got the four Gospels, which are the link pin between the Old and the New Testament. The two poles, which is picturing Christ's human and divine nature, which is presented in the Old and New Testament, but they are lacking the adjective tahor. And why is that? Because we are involved not only in the uh, uh, reduplication of scriptures, but we are also involved in the translation of them. When you read the King James Version, for example, they will insert words and they'll, they'll be in italics. An italicized word is not in the original. Therefore, it is not the word of God in the sense that it is not what was received from God under inspiration of the scriptures. Okay, There is no perfect word of God, not the King James Version or any other, and that is symbolized in the implements. Now, curiously, when we get to this implement, when we get to this implement, which is the altar of incense, is what a study. What a study. When we get to that, there are not four rings on this altar. There are only two rings. So I would like you that attend on Sunday mornings to think about that. Why only two rings? What does that picture? And the poles, once again, are exactly the same. They, are, they have the same meaning. The two testaments and the, the gold does not have the adjective tahor. Okay, so we already know what the poles are because it's consistent. But why only two rings instead of four? Think of that and if you uh, can discern it before the Sunday uh, service or before you read it, the uh, notes on Sunday, I will buy you dinner at the Thai restaurant. Okay, um, and that's my commitment to you. What do those two rings instead of four picture? Same basic concept, I'll give you that much. But anyway, the reason why I'm bringing that up is because uh, we may, um, we may uh, whereas as he is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, everything he will say is the absolute truth and how things are in relation to God. 
There was no error in what Paul wrote. There was no error in what the Holy Spirit gave through him. The error is introduced. The reason why it is not Zahab Tahor or gold pure in those pictures of Christ in the past is because man is involved in the transmission of God's word. And once man gets his fingers on anything, it becomes corrupted. That does not mean that we don't have a sure word of God. And I want to make sure I explain that very carefully and methodically in these sermons. We have a sure word. There are differences in source texts, and we will, at some point during the book of Romans, do what we did during the book of Acts. We will go through how we receive the Bible, where the differences in manuscripts are, and how these differences, believe it or not, the differences in manuscripts, you have 5,686 different Greek texts, okay, or copies of ancient Greek texts that we can refer to. And we can find, we can read 300 of them will have this word say, uh, you know, I, I won't do it right now, and then the other 5,600 or 386 will have the word, uh, uh, just a different word, instead of saying and, it will say buck. But how can that difference in those two words, how can we determine which is correct and which is not? And we can, we'll go through that. I'll show you how we come to a resolution of what the original word of God is with like 99.999% accuracy. The more source documents we have, the closer we get to what was originally given. And someday we will see the original pure word of God as it is revealed to us when we stand before the Lord. Right now we don't have that, and there is a reason why. And we also talked about the reasons in a, a, a past Bible study. So I don't want people, the reason why I'm being uh, peculiar about this is because people on the internet may be wondering, well, if we don't have sure word of God, then what are we doing? We don't have to, we do have a sure word of God. And we have a way of discerning that, okay? I just want you to know that different source texts with a couple of different differences does not mean that we don't have a sure word, in particular with theological matters concerning Christ. There are no, there are no errors or omissions in what is essentially necessary to know, to understand, and to be able to relay the message of Jesus Christ. None. The differences are all non uh, uh, I, I can say that they are not of sufficient weight to have somebody say, well, that could lead to a heresy. None of them, okay? It's very important to understand that because some people will say, well, the King James Version is the only pure word of God and here's why. And it's a fallacious argument from the start, okay? And plus, I, I log the errors of the King James Version as I go through it, and there are many. It's a fallible translation by fallible man. The original, what God gave, is infallible. And that is absolutely certain don't need to worry about that, but like I said, we will go through that sometime. We'll, we'll take a break, and we'll go through an entire section of how you can know this. And uh, this is called, um, um, uh, what's the term that they use? Um, uh, all right, I'm not remembering it, and I'm not going to, I just had a, a brain squiggle that went away. So, okay, we'll go on anyway. Um, uh, we may disagree, but we are only disagreeing with God. And I'm talking about Paul's words about the nature of truth in relation to God. And he's going to get into some things that uh, invariably people will leave Bible studies when you start talking about things that come later in Romans chapter 1, Romans 1, 18 and down, talking about issues like homosexuality, morality. Where do we get off in society to a place where we are no longer following and pursuing God? Very detailed what he talks about. And people will disagree with that, and then they'll get up. And I talked about that in the Prophecy Update this past week, is that there's a guy out in... Uh, uh, where was it, Oklahoma, and he was preaching, 
about homosexuality, and he said people just started getting up and leaving his church. They have not been grounded in understanding the Word of God and what God expects of us. And that brings us real quickly to where morals come from. Where do morals come from? God. From God. If they come from anywhere else, and this is what society has tried to do since the beginning, is to determine that morals come from somewhere other than God. There are, there are a million different ways of deter determining where morals could come from. You can say, well, they come from culture. A culture. What they do in that culture is okay because that's their culture. And you hear people say this all the time. Well, don't worry about those people over in Borneo that are eating their uh, you know, headhunters. That's their culture. All right? And so they say that morals are cultural in nature. And other people will say that morals are um, based on the government. The government determines where morals come from. And that is where progressives are in this, and I shouldn't even say progressives, liberals. That is where they are. Progressive kind of pushes it away and says, well, there are some good liberals. If you are in the liberal party of the United States of America, you are completely in the basket for morals being derived by the government. They determine what is right. They determine what is wrong. And if that is true, and that takes your right to Nazism, that takes you to communism, now the government can take away your life without any regard for who you are because they have determined the morals. Some people will say that morals are mores. That means what I personally believe is what is okay. And that's where we try to get this moral relativism introduced into a society, right? We say that, you know, that guy is identifying as a female today. And therefore, it's right because that is his moral. If that is true, then there's utter chaos, there's anarchy, and there's nothing to keep every society on this planet from completely devolving. So morals are important. Paul, what he is writing is absolutely true in relation to what God has for us to understand. Absolutely true. Okay, so we need to have that mind when we come to the Bible. That doesn't mean, though, I don't want to qualify this for people that may not understand uh, how I, I perceive these things. Is when you come to the Bible, as when you come to any book, you should question it. How can I know that this is absolute truth? Because if you don't, you're just putting your eggs in a basket without thinking it through. And that's what Muslims do with the Quran. They go to the Quran and they say, this is my standard of truth. And they do not question that God is vindictive and changing that's presented in the Quran. If that is true, then it can't be the God of creation because the God of creation does not change. He doesn't increase in love. He does not decrease in love. God is love. Okay? Why would God be angry at Adolf Hitler and not at Jim Dwyer? It's because his other attributes have been satisfied through the work of his son. But his love doesn't change from Jim Dwyer to Adolf Hitler. He is love. He infinitely loves all things, but he is also infinitely just. He's also infinitely righteous. He's also infinitely holy. This is what Paul is going to be writing about. But question it. Does this make sense to me? And if not, then you have to determine by taking the other verses in context, and you have to say, I understand why God said this in the book of Exodus, that God repented of something, which we're going to, I typed that sermon uh, today, which means in 10 weeks from, I'm sorry, Monday, which means in 10 weeks from this past Monday, we'll, or we'll be doing that sermon. And there's a point where it says God relented. Moses talked him out of doing something. Is that true from our perspective, or is that true from God's perspective? Because if it's true from God's perspective, then he changed, and it can't be the, Bible, the God of the Bible. But if it's done with a plan and a purpose in mind, 
then it is God. He is directing the events which are happening, and he is, it says anthropomorph, anthropomorphically, excuse me, that God changes. What does that mean? And you have to understand it in context. And once you do that, then you can say that he didn't really change. The Bible has to use words in order to describe what occurred. All right? Anyway, these are important tenets, and it might be a little bit confusing, but what I'm trying to tell you is that what Paul is writing is truth. Okay? We may interpret doctrinal points differently, but in the end, there is only one correct interpretation. Therefore, as with the entire Bible, a careful analysis is required. The reason why I say that is because uh, this is not my original thinking, but I heard the man say it, and I 100% agreed with it from the moment I heard it, and I will repeat it from time to time. Bad doctrine is what? Three-letter word. Very easy word to remember. Bad doctrine is sin. That's all there is to it. That's why it says in James 3.1 that uh, uh, brothers, not many of you should purpose to be teachers, knowing that you shall receive the stricter judgment. You don't receive judgment unless you're doing something wrong. Bad doctrine is sin. And so when I disagree with somebody on a point of doctrine, I should be at least willing to say I could be wrong and research it until I am fully convinced that I am not wrong. Because if you don't do that, you're the one that's got to stand before the Lord. You can listen to me all day long and you can say, well, gee, Charlie's a good teacher or he's a bad teacher. But either I'm teaching what is correct or I'm not teaching what is correct. And when you go and listen to R.C. Sproul about some of the issues that Paul is going to be speaking of, he is going to have a completely different conclusion on them. Completely different. One of us is wrong because we both can't be right. We could both be wrong or one of us could be right, but we both cannot be right. So that's what's important about this. If ultimately, we come to Bible study to learn the word of God. But we are the ones that are responsible for what we pass on to others and what we assimilate into ourselves. And don't ever forget that, okay? Be careful. A careful analysis is always required. All right. Paul's first thought is to, and I'm going back to uh, uh, the, uh, the word here, Romans 1. Paul's first thought is to thank my God through Jesus Christ. As intolerant as it may sound, is anybody going to disagree with what I'm going to say? Anybody here? And don't be embarrassed to say it. There is one way to God. One way. Does anybody have a different theology in their, their background that there are many paths to God or that other people can come to God? There's one way to God. 14, Jesus, 6 John. John 14, 6. He said it. Either it's true or it's not. If it's not true, then we're following the wrong Savior. Okay? Because there's an error in what he said. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. There is one way to be reconciled to God the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ, okay? Um, uh, and there is only one mediator between God and man. That is Jesus Christ, and that takes us to 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, which I'll read you right now, so that uh, uh, unless you have it memorized, then just spout it out. One mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The man Christ Jesus, okay? Make sure you say it loud when you talk, though. Um, uh, but that's correct. That's uh, 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, is that there is one mediator. That means that we cannot, do I say it because I don't want to, uh, uh, no, I don't say it. We don't want to pray to Mary. We don't want to pray to the saints. All right, as a matter of fact, the altar of incense is going to completely blow that away. If you know what incense pictures in the Bible, then you already have an idea of what this sermon is about. I'm going to tell you it is, it is marvelous. It is marvelous how the altar of incense ties in with so many other pieces of furniture within the tabernacle. It is like the, the, the link pin between everything else 
It is marvelous. It's absolutely astonishing what it pictures. But one mediator between God and man. No prayer to God is acceptable which has not gone through Jesus. No prayer. That's pictured in the Old Testament. You have uh, Aaron the high priest. He is the one that goes in behind the veil and, and uh, does what he does once a year on the Day of Atonement. The rest of the year, the priestly class is are those who are, are uh, what is it, uh, the breastplate of righteousness which we talked about. Give you a hint as to this right now. You have the altar of sacrifice, which is picturing Christ's sacrifice for us, and all of the other sacrifices which go on there. Everything points to some portion of Christ's ministry. And then you have the breastplate of judgment, and then you have the altar of incense, right? And they're all square. Each of those is square. And on his shoulders, he's got something else. This picture's one thing, this picture's something else. And so if you have this, and you have this, and you have this, and this is the, the point between the two, it's showing you that Aaron is the one that takes this and this to this point, and then it goes into that point. I just, I'm trying to get you to think that through in case you do watch this on Sunday. It'll help you process what's coming. But understanding this, that, that the high priest is picturing Jesus Christ, and he is the one mediator, the one mediator, then when Christ came, he is the one mediator. The Old Testament is showing us these things to show us the truth of what Jesus Christ did, what he does, and what is explained about him. Don't pray to Mary. Don't pray to anybody else. Don't talk to dead people. Talk through Jesus Christ to God, and your prayers will be heard if you are a saved believer in Christ. Okay. Um, uh, no thanks to or praise of God is effective unless it is directed through Christ. And so Paul gives his thanks to God through Jesus on behalf of the believers in Rome. And it is a thanks grounded in the knowledge of their great faith, a faith spoken of throughout the whole world is what he says. Although the reason for their faith being so widely disseminated is not directly stated, the content of the epistle certainly indicates some of the reasons. Paul will speak on immorality, and it is probable that the believers were either mocked or held in esteem for holding a high moral stand. They're in the, the, the bastion of wickedness in the world. You've got Rome, which is the seat of power, and it's the seat of all of these rulers that go out and do all these things. And so if you held a moral stand in Rome at that time, people would know it. And so that word, because Rome, all, all roads lead to Rome. Rome, okay? Because all leads ro uh, roads lead to Rome, that means that all roads lead from Rome. And so as people are traveling out, they're going to say, there's a bunch of Christians in Rome that, you know, they won't do this and they won't do that. The word got out. And when Paul writes of the world, all the world has heard this, he's not speaking of the globe, he's speaking of the known world, the Roman Empire, where the knowledge of God had diffused out into the Roman Empire. He can make that statement that the word has gone out to the whole world because all roads lead to Rome, meaning all roads lead from Rome. They go out to everywhere. So if Rome has it, something out in the British Empire at this time, then the people out in the British Empire had heard this word, and eventually missionaries got out there and evangelized them. So anyway, um, uh, where is this? Um, he will also speak on God's judgment, man's fallen nature, and righteousness, and so on. He's going to speak of all of these things. Any of these issues could be the basis for the recognition of the faith uh, by the world's people. They see this and they say, well, this is what the Christians believe. And this is what should be. Now, I, just a little life application before I go on. This is what should be the case in what? Our lives. Every single person here, people ought to say, there's something about that person that I would like to know more. 
every single person here, if somebody doesn't come up to you at some point and say to you, why is it that you are the way you are? You're not doing your job. And that is, yes, intended to convict you. Because if you bear the name of Jesus Christ, and if you honestly believe that Jesus Christ is, as I said, and he, I quoted and he said, the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father but through him, then the worst possible thing that you can do as a human being is to keep that message silent or to disgrace that message. To say, you know, I, I listened to D. James Kennedy before he died and he said uh, when he became a Christian, you know, he was sitting uh, in his house and he heard the message on the TV and he, he fell on the floor and he was just in utter tears that the life that he had lived that he was in remorse for. And he said, Lord, the one thing I would ask of you right now is that I never bring disgrace upon your name. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't disgrace upon the name of Christian because he got slammed all the time for being a Christian. But that was a good slamming, not a bad slamming. In other words, he didn't do anything morally improper so that people could say, look at those Christians. You know, they, they're hypocrites. Instead, he did things where they said, look at those Christians. They, you know, live morally, and people don't want to live morally. But if you're not doing that, then there is something that is wrong with your presentation of your life in regards to the faith that you profess. Yes, sir. First Timothy 3.15. 1 Timothy 3.15. Go ahead. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give account for the hope that is in you with gentleness and reverence. And reverence. That's right. And i got to tell you, that word that is in there where he says give a defense, what is that word? Uh, in Greek. Uh, I thought you apology. just... Apology. and apologia. Uh, an apology. Okay. It doesn't mean I'm sorry for my faith. What it means is that's where we get the word apologetics. We learn to defend our faith because we're told to defend our faith. And if you can't defend your faith, you're not doing what the Bible asks you to do. All right? This is not a salvation issue, but it is an issue of rewards and losses. And I, I think of all of the people that will stand up before the Lord and they'll say, Lord, I'm here. And he says, well, what did you do for me after you got saved? And they're going to pull their hands out of their pocket and their, their inside of their pocket is going to be just lint falling on the ground and they're, yeah here's your gift buddy so in other words we need to be able to say I built a defense of why I believed what I believed and I was willing to tell people about that I was willing to actually go out and tell people about that there are two people in this room that I go out with every single Saturday morning of my life and we go down to the projects and we tell people about Jesus and we've seen people's lives changed we've seen what is the one thing, one of you, uh, we'll, we'll ask Jim, what is the one thing that we always pray for before we start walking? That the Lord puts someone in our path who doesn't know him. Lord, please send somebody into our path that needs to hear about you today. And it doesn't always happen, but we ask for it. And then we go out and we tell people about Jesus. And we try to encourage them. And we've got families that now go to church that never, that were meth addicts, Right. And this is what you do with your life is you get, and that's not a boast. This isn't a boast. This is trying to convict you that you should be doing something like this as well. You should be using your life. Uh, somebody emailed me a, a couple days ago, maybe last week, and she said, I know you're busy, but, and I said, you know what? My, my policy is use me up now, Lord, because this is all I got. Might as well use me up now because if I fritter this time away, I got eternity to regret it. So... Anyway, um, the, best, uh, the best quote on that that's not biblical, I think, came from St. Francis of Sissy. Yes. It says, uh, preach the gospel endlessly 
And if necessary, use words? Use words. If necessary, use words. But be a living gospel for people. Absolutely right. Um, did you have something? Yes. Yeah. Paul was writing to these people who he's never met. Right. And he's thanking the Lord for them in advance. In advance. And then he says that we're both on down here in the letter that we're both going to come out ahead because I've come to you and you're going to help me. Right. So he's 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 working on he's, a mutual relationship. He's putting them up. That's right because he wants to go there. He wants to meet them. It's in his heart to go to the seat of power in the Roman Empire and then to be helped along his way on the way to Spain. Well, he's not so. saying, "Look at me, I'm the big cheese." That's right. The, you know. The gospel is going out from them already. That's right. He is telling them the good thing that they have done. That's yeah. a, that's exactly right. Okay. Um, so um, let's see here. Um, uh, towards God. Is, uh, oh, what Paul will do is logically defend our responsibilities and obligations towards God, both from his general revelation of himself, which he's going to speak about in Romans chapter 1, general revelation, and uh, uh, of himself through nature, as well as his specific revelation of himself through the Bible and through Jesus. Real quickly, I'm not going to get into it real deeply, but just so you understand the difference, general revelation is what we can deduce about God just from walking around looking at trees. That is general revelation. Oh, look, there's a tree. It smells good. God must be gracious because he didn't have to put that smell in there for me to enjoy, right? That tree uh, is making more trees. God is a God of planning. He's not a God that just says, I'm going to give you a tree and then it dies and that's the end of it. God is a God of, and you can deduce all of these things. You can go on all day like that, determining what God is like. What is God like by looking at the tree, by looking at a, a young bride and a young husband falling in love? They're a couple, they fall in love, they get married, and they establish a relationship. Well, how can you have a relationship unless the creator understands relationships because if God is a monad like the uh, uh, by the, the Muslims say in the Quran then there would be no relationships here because he would be com completely contained within himself and we cannot know something that God does not know if God doesn't know a relationship before he creates then there would be no relationships if you see what I'm saying, everything that we perceive is something that God already knows and he already experiences, whether it's actual within the, the Godhead itself or whether it's something that he knows will occur when he creates. All things are known to him, and from what he has created, we can deduce things about him. That is general revelation very quickly. Then you have special revelation. Special revelation is things that you cannot understand about God Anyway, there's no way impossible to deduce this unless he tells you, unless he explains it to you. General revelation comes from a, several different sources. Give me a couple of the sources. Yes. I'm sorry, special revelation, not general. Okay. Uh, the that, word. Uh, the word. The word is special revelation. But that's jumping ahead because the word is a result of something else. Okay. First, uh, uh, that I would say a special revelation would be the word of the prophets and the word of the apostles. Because they come and they proclaim the word of God to the people. And they say, thus says the Lord, I'm going to bring disaster on Jerusalem and on Israel because you have done this, right? They didn't know that before. And they could not have known that apart from being told. All right? So they're given the word of the prophets and the apostles. Moses gave them special revelation. David received special revelation. 
David was given special revelation from his own prophet, uh, what was his name, um, uh, Nathan, thank you. When he did something wrong, he came in and said, you've done this thing, right? So, special revelation is something you cannot know unless God reveals it to you, all right? So, from that, yes. In this Deuteronomy where he lists all these, like 27 or 28, 8 9, that Moses rehearsed to them. Right. So, God gave it first. That's right. So... That was special revelation just to Moses? To Moses, and then Moses reveals it to us. Okay, yeah. So that, that is not the spoken word, that's the written word, or it is transmitted to him and then he passes it on. But that's correct, that's special revelation. Now, there's something in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, which yeah. tells us more about special revelation. What is it? The secret, secret things. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. Okay, he reveals things at his will, and until he wills them, they remain secret. That is special revelation. So you have the, the, the prophets, you have the apostles, you've got, uh, you know, uh, he, he goes through three things in Job, in one chapter of Job, where he says he may speak to a person through a dream in the night, or he may speak to him. In other words, he's revealing himself in a special way, okay? And I won't get into whether that still happens today or not. I would, we're just going to go with where that leads to. That leads to the next logical thing, which is the Word of God. If he speaks it, then it's recorded, then it becomes special revelation in the Word of God. But the Word of God is intended to show us something. Jesus. It's written about God revealing himself in human history. So special revelation par excellence would be Jesus Christ coming out and explaining what God is doing and saying, all of this points to me. Okay? All of this. And that's why I do not believe in special revelation beyond this. Because if there is, then we don't live by faith, we live by sight. And if we live by sight, then we don't have faith, which is contrary to the word of God. We live by faith and not by sight. We have to have faith in this word. Is this true or is it not? If it is, why aren't we pursuing it? Why aren't we studying it? Okay? That's just a real quick explanation of general and special revelation, but that's what Paul is going to reveal. General in Romans 1, special revelation, explaining the work of Christ in particular throughout the epistle. All right, um, let's see here, where is that? Um, general revelation, um, his specific revelation of himself through the Bible and through Jesus. As humans, especially in our postmodern society, we may find Paul's words out of touch, but God doesn't, and that's what we have to understand. God doesn't care if you dislike the Bible. I mean, I, I don't mean he doesn't care in the sense that it, it doesn't change him in any way. His word is not going to be affected by your saying, I disagree with that or not. That's why I always bring in, I bring it in all the time to the point where people get angry at me for repeating it, but it says in the Bible that women are not to teach or have authority over a man, right? Who wrote that? God did. God wrote that word. It doesn't matter if it bothers you. It doesn't matter if it gets you upset. My pastor is a very good pastor. She preaches wonderfully. It doesn't matter. It is disobedience to the source of what she says she's proclaiming. Okay? That's all there is to it. So this is, this is why it does not change God's mind, what we think and what we do. It doesn't change it at all. He does care that we hold fast to it. But So I, I, I didn't mean to say it the way I said it at first, but it doesn't change how his word is revealed to us at all. 
not in any way, shape, or form. It is fixed, it is firm, and it is unchanging. The word of the Lord stands sure, for, sure forever. That's right. Okay, so um, uh, let's see here of himself through the Bible of Jesus. Okay, what is presented in this epistle reflects God's standards, and we ignore them or attempt to, attempt to diminish them at our own peril. This is God's standard, and we have to understand that if we are saved, and I would hope that everybody here has called on Jesus Christ because we have two or three new people that came today. If you haven't, then you have to get the salvation first before the works and the understanding. We were talking, Jim and I were talking about that when he got here a little early today, is that too many churches will have people come in and they tell you to go out and do this good thing and go out and do that thing and they form little committees and they help old ladies across the street and they, you know, they do, and they never talk about the salvation issue, which is the only thing that matters because it doesn't matter what you do on this planet. It does not matter what you do. Your deed is as a filthy rag before the Lord unless you are doing it in faith, and that means in faith in what has God has revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how much money Bill Gates has given away, billions of dollars for AIDS research. It means nothing. It means absolutely nothing without obedience to the word of God. Nothing. Okay? And most of what we have in our requirements in the Bible, most of it, not all of it, but most of it is simply exhortations. You should do this. Because if you do this, then your life will go well. There are commands in the New Testament for us to follow, but most of what Paul says is, I exhort you, brothers. I implore you, brothers. He's not commanding them to do anything. But if they don't do that, who is the one that's going to be hurt? The individual that doesn't do it. If we run our lives by the guidelines of the Bible, then things will go well. Why? Because God's the one that created us, and God is the one that has given us this word for our well-being. If we don't follow its precepts, all we're doing is we're kicking against the goads. Saul, Saul, why are you kicking against the goads? These are the goads. These are what prod us to a healthy life. If we kick against it, we're only hurting ourselves. Okay, first, uh, anything else on 1-8? I see Sandy's looking very chipper today. I'm glad to see that smile. Go ahead, one nine. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you. Okay, I, I, mine reads a little different. In my prayers, it doesn't say in my prayers in the next verse, maybe? Uh, yes. Okay, in the next verse. That's why, it, it, once again, that translation is a suitable translation. This translation is a suitable translation, but... The verse carries over in a different way so that the word prayer is in the next verse. So I'm going to read mine just so you can see the difference. And this is why neither one is incorrect, but neither one is actually the word of God that was uh, received by Paul. And that's why the adjective pure was missing off of the poles. It's because man has translated these words. There are defects in what man does always. Nothing man does is perfect. Okay. Um, uh, so, uh, that was verse 9. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. All right. Paul draw, draws God in as his witness for his thoughts in the next two verses. What he is going to convey, then, is absolute truth. His vow is before God, whom I serve with my spirit. The word Paul uses for spirit is pneumati. As he writes throughout his epistles, he consistently and carefully makes a distinction and even a contrast between the spirit and the soul. To Paul, the demarcation is absolutely clear. 
the spirit of a person, the pneuma, is not the same as the soul, which is the suke. Okay? To him, suke, P-S-U-C-H-E, suke. We would say psyche. Okay? Yeah. But anyway, it's, it's spelled suke. It's probably pronounced psyche. But anyway, because the U becomes a, a Y sound quite often, but I'm not proficient in that. Okay? Anyway, um, uh, I used to speak Greek a lot better than I do now because I've been in the, the Old Testament so long with, you know, these sermons. I, I, I could speak Greek pretty well before. I was self-taught in both, but uh, uh, I just don't get into the New Testament that much to, to practice it. Whereas when I, when I learned Hebrew and when I learned Greek, I taught myself them. The first thing I did was I got the, um, what is it, the um, uh, interlinear Bible. That um, It's a four-part Bible. It's a big series. And I read the entire thing, first in Hebrew and then in Greek. And that way it helped me to mentally solidify those things. But, like I said, I, it's been a long time since I've read, read anything in Greek. And so I just... I, you forget things very quickly. And you, know, you memorized every word. Oh, I, yeah, sure, I memorized the whole thing. Well, it's like Korean. You know, I went to the Korean church for uh, two and a half years, and I taught myself to read and to write Korean. I don't write it very well, and I could speak it, but I didn't understand any of it, kind of the same as the Hebrew and the Greek, right? So I would sing the Psalms, and even to this day, I know that if I went there and they started playing music, I could sing those songs, Psalms, in Korean, because music does something to you. It, it, it changes you. It's like you hear a song you haven't heard in 50 years and you remember the lyrics. Music helps with that. But anyway, I couldn't speak 10 words of Korean right now, I'll bet, but I could speak it pretty well before. Anyway, um, as a matter of fact, it got to the point where I remember one time we were at a table and uh, uh, two of my friends were there that were Korean and their friend was visiting. She was talking in Korean and she says, you know, he can understand you. And so after that, they were more careful with what they were saying. Anyway, um, uh, okay, so here we are. Um, uh, okay, the, the suke or the psyche. To him, it is the difference between the spiritual life of the person and the natural physical life of the person. Now, might as well really quickly, because I brought this point in, and I may even mention it in the notes, but I haven't gone that far, um, is that does the Bible teach a, a, a threefold aspect of man or a twofold aspect of man? And some of you are going to disagree on this, and that's fine. But what's that? Three. You're thinking of body, soul, and spirit, right? Okay, anybody else disagree with that? I will tell you what I believe. The Bible teaches anthropomorphological hieromorphism, which means the two aspects of man. Anthropological is man. Hylomorphism means a soul-body unity. The spirit is not included in that. The spirit is a part of who we are that was lost at the fall, and so the spirit is something that is regenerated in Christ. So it's actually attached to us, but it's not threefold. We are not soul, body, spirit uh, uh, entities. We are soul, body entities with a spirit which is dead, and that spirit is regenerated in Christ. And that's why, when you go back to the fall of man, the disconnect came immediately. You have sinned. Uh, the man has become like us, knowing uh, the knowledge of good and evil, and, and the whole thing shows that there is now a disconnect between God and man. And that fracture has remained consistently in all human beings, all around the world, all of them, until the coming of Jesus Christ. Then that spirit is regenerated, we are reanimated, and we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, which is Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, and that is when we are become a complete human again, as we were intended to be. 
Now, obviously, this is positional, okay? In other words, Paul writes in uh, Ephesians 2, uh, 7, he says, we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. heavenlies. That's right, in the heavenly realms. Are we there? No. no. So he is saying, positionally, we are reckoned as seated with God right now. It is a done deal. It can never be taken away from you. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. That means that we are a soul body with a regenerated spirit. Okay? Everybody else on the earth is not seated with Christ in the heavenlies unless they call on Jesus. And therefore, they are a soul body with an unregenerate spirit. So, anthropological hylomorphism. Remember that. Okay. One question. Yes. Could you draw, and I mean, you might have already done it, but for simplicity. So, you got the man's body, and right. you got his spirit, which is dead. Right. So, now what is, and it's because I get mixed up between the spirit of God dwelling in you and the spirit of man. Well, that's the reconnect. Okay. That's what I'm saying, so, is that the spirit, the connection between God and man died. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit, the regenerated connection between God and man. So it's not really a part of us, but it is a part of us. It is something that is uh, uniting us nature. back to what God. The, the new nature, because I'm not only... The new nature. Is the Holy Spirit different than... I mean, it's like homogenization or something, but the Holy... It's not no... The Holy Spirit dwells the person. It's a believer. If you don't have it, you're not one of His. That's however, right. You're not one of His. But however, how does... Paul said later on in like Romans chapter 7 about the things I would do, I don't do. Right. Some people see that. But we're still in this carnal body. Okay. We are still in this body. That's why I'm saying we're positionally with Christ, but we are not. And that's why we have right now not only a mediator, but we have an advocate. Advocate. Because he is there. An advocate is a little different than the mediator. Yes, ma'am. If you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit. That's right. Yeah. The moment you believe in Jesus Christ and his work, you are given the Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit within you. That's correct. That the moment, and that is, you know, I know Pentecostals don't like to hear this, but that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's no second baptism. There's, you are, the examples of the book of Acts are prescriptive. They, I'm sorry, descriptive. They describe what happened, and they were done intentionally to record that the Jews were, were brought into the covenant, that the Gentiles were brought into the covenant, the Samaritans, they are descriptive verses. I know I said prescriptive, but they are de they only describe what happened, and they happened for a reason, and we went through the book of Acts methodically for two and a half years to show us that. There's one sealing of the Holy Spirit. Paul's letters are prescriptive. They prescribe to us what occurs in our salvation. They prescribe to us what we are to do with our salvation. They prescribe how we are to conduct our lives, all of that kind of stuff. Acts is a descriptive book. Don't use Acts for your theology because if you do, you're going to have bad theology. End of that story. Anyway, hard uh, time picking. Very hard time picking also. That's right. You have to pick something and you have to disregard something if you use books, the book of Acts for your theology. Yes? Soul and spirit at death goes to be with the Lord? Absolutely. Well, the, the spirit yeah, is, is with the Lord right now positionally. It is there. We have that reconnection. Okay, so the soul. We're, we're two then at death. Yes. What does it say about the soul uh, when a, when a, a person dies? The soul is. Paul uses a, an expression in uh, one Corinthians to explain the state of the soul without a body. It is naked. It is unnatural because we are a soul body unity. Okay. The soul without a body is naked, and therefore it is an unnatural thing. And that is why Christ, when the rapture occurs, Christ is going to give us new 
bodies. bodies. Thank you. We are not going to be ethereal beings that float around in the heavenlies forever. We will be physical beings with physical bodies with a regenerated spirit of eternal connection back to God. We have to have new bodies. No, that's right. These bodies cannot. Yeah, corruption yes. cannot inherit the in. Uh, for yeah, that. the incorruptible cannot inherit. Exactly. I, I, I'm misquoting that, but that's one Corinthians 15. Let me read that to you. Uh, corruption cannot inherit incorruption. Where is that? One Corinthians chapter 15, and I'll read that very quickly, and then we'll go on. Um, one Corinthians 15, and he, he he goes into great detail about that. Um, but real quickly, he says here uh, in uh, verse 40. Uh, two, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The d- body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Not a spirit body, like the Jehovah's Witnesses would say, a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body, and so it is with the first, uh, it is written, the first man became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The reconnection is made, okay? Um, then he goes down and he, he says all this. Verse 50, I, I skipped about eight verses. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit in corruption. And then he talks about the rapture, which, of course, praetorists will deny. Anyway, go on. Um, uh, so we have the, the pneuma and the psyche, suke, whatever. To him, it, the difference is... Uh, between the spiritual life of the person and the natural physical life of the person. Okay, it's important to understand the nature of humanity as the Bible <coughs> presents it, um, though to fully understand and define what Paul is speaking of. Um, humans, oh, and I, I said I was going to talk about it, and I did. Now my notes uh, say humans are a soul body, soul with a body. The two are uni- united and are incomplete without each other, as I said. 2 Corinthians 5, I said 1 Corinthians, it's 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 3, will tell us, let me read them to you. 2 Corinthians 5, 1, verse 3, I said 1 Corinthians, and I hate when I do that. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5, 1, verse 3, says, uh, um, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed, if we're clothed, then that means without the body we are naked, okay? Um, with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed we have been clothed, we shall not be found naked. Okay, so he's explaining to us what it means to be a soul-body unity and what it means when we die, that that's not a natural state for human beings. Man was created in order to be a soul-body unity that went on forever, that would last forever, and that was lost because of conscience. The man ate of the fruit, the connection was uh, severed, man has a conscience, and from that point on it was just downhill ever since then. Started in innocence, went to conscience. It was necessary though, because a being that doesn't have that conscience, it's not the way it should be. So it was a necessary thing that Adam fell. Okay, And suppose that Adam and Eve didn't fall. Let's really quickly philosophize on this. If they didn't fall and they had a child, and the child did fall, then what would, it'd be a a catastrophe, wouldn't it? You'd have the unregenerate, and you'd have the regenerate in one place, and it it, it just wouldn't work. It was the natural and necessary thing for man to fall, to gain a conscience, to understand that he needs God. Without that, that conscience, he never could have fully understood these things. And so the 
marvel of the fact that we have this conscience and that we have free will is that we can say to God, I need you and I want you. And that is what restores us to him. That is what brings about the marvel of, I mean, how many of you here when you came to Jesus were totally overwhelmed by that? I mean, some people weren't because they were little children. They didn't understand. They just grew up into being Christians. But I'm telling you, when I realized what Christ did for me, it took me months to, to even process it. It was such a marvelous thing. And then when you screw up now and you realize that you're forgiven, don't you, don't you appreciate it? Isn't it something after you appreciate? Yeah, after the pain, after the anguish, then you appreciate it. You couldn't do that without a conscience. It, it wouldn't mean anything. Without understanding where you were, you can't know how good it is where you are, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, anyway, and proof, proof in the pudding is Adam and Eve being in the garden and not understanding how glorious it was, how wonderful it was, because the, the naming of Abel, if nothing else, Abel shows you how desperately she wanted to go back and to be in that paradise again. And it didn't happen because God had a much longer plan than Eve's quick return to the Garden of Eden. Anyway, um, let's see here. So um, in these verses, he calls the soul without a body naked. This concept is known as, and I said it, anthropological hylomorphism. Man is a soul-body unity. The natural man is a soul united with a body, whether connected to God or not. Okay? Uh, This is similar to an animal. An animal is a soul-body unity, but it doesn't have a conscience. It doesn't have, it's not a sentient being in the sense that it knows that it can do right and wrong. It just does things out of instinct, okay? So that that brings us to, um, it's in Ecclesiastes, and I'm not going to remember where. It's either, I think, in 4 or 7, where Solomon asks about the end of an animal. What? Who knows if the, the soul of a man does what the animal does, right? And he, he asked this question, you know, how does it all work out? He wasn't sure. But I will tell you that the Bible is, and I said this to Jim one time when we were talking, and he said, well, that's a good way of answering it, because people ask you, is my dog going to heaven? Listen, the Bible is not about the redemption of dogs. The Bible is about the redemption of man. What God is going to do with all of the animals that he's created for the past, you know, many eons is up to God. The Bible doesn't address it. It doesn't, and you know, it's a side issue that people should not ever devolve into. God will take perfectly good care of his people for our good. And that's all we need to know. The Bible does not address the redemption of animals. We know there's okay. one horse, though. We know that so there's a horse because Jesus rides back on a horse. Was that created in heaven for Christ to ride on? Was it a redeemed horse? And let's not go there, okay? <laughs> there are animals in heaven, okay? Are they the same ones? Are they... It's not worth going into because no. the Bible doesn't address those issues. It's okay, It's about the redemption of man, a sentient being, the highest of God's creation, which fell, and which God determined was sufficiently worthy to send his son to the cross to die for. And if that's the case, then that's what we should be <coughs> focusing on. Okay, So I, 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 when people ask me about the rede- you know, their, their dogs going to heaven or whatever, it, it's not even a starter. Don't even start down that path with people. Just just trust that God has it all figured There'll out. There will be okay? no sorrow. There'll there will be no, no sorrow. Every tear will be wiped away by a loving and gracious God. Okay, um, so the where was I? Man, soul, body, unity. Um, there is a, um, this is similar to an animal. There is a body and a life force which propels that body, but not necessarily a spiritual aspect. All right, the spirit, the pneuma Paul is speaking of is the spiritual connection between God and man. It is that part of the man which is intimately connected to God. All right? 
That's why Paul makes that very clear point in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. When you believe, you receive. The Holy Spirit is granted, and from that time on, you're seated in the heavenly realms. Everything is restored that was lost. I know it doesn't seem like it right now, but trust me, if you've trusted in Christ, it is restored. God is going to give you the fullness of what they lost 6,000 years ago, and it is going to be marvelous. I can't wait. Actually, we're going to have more than they had, though, because we have Jesus. Mm. We have the understanding of what God did to get us back to where we're going. We can't so, lose it either. No, we can't lose it. I don't ever let anybody tell you that you can lose your salvation. Oh, I meant far as that oh. which is set aside in heaven. No, that's it right. It won't corrupt. That, it it will never corrupt. It is, it is eternal. It is going to be glorious. Um, you know, and I, I, I really struggle over that because there are days where I don't even want to be alive anymore. I just think, ah, oh, it's so routine and so mundane. And I think, how are you going to fill my time where I don't feel this way? Because I'm only 52 years old, right? How is it going to be? But it is. It's going to be, we're going to be ceaselessly and endlessly researching the mind of God. And we're going to be seeing glory revealed that we will never get tired of forever. I can't wait. Um, all right. Paul says that God whom he serves with his spirit is in the gospel of his son. Oh, we've got 15 minutes left. Gosh. Um, well, we, we, we've still got a long way to go in nine. Um, the uh, gospel is a spiritual force then. And of course this is so. In Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, Paul writes this. He says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. As you can see, a living person, a soul-body unity, can still be dead, right? If you were dead and yet you were alive, then that means you were dead going off to death. Without Jesus Christ, you're a dead person, spiritually, going off to eternal death. What Christ did is come back to, make you, to bring you back to life. And so you are death leading to life, or actually now life leading to life because you're you're reanimated. So, anyway, what is needed is the, um, where was I? Um, uh, oh, okay. As, uh, yeah, what is needed is the regeneration which comes through the gospel message. When this is received, the spirit is made alive. We are now reconnected to God through the gospel. Our soul body unity is as God intended for us. Got it? Everybody understand that? If not, I can explain it a little more. Everybody's got it. Okay, good stuff. We are dead we were meant to be alive we call on jesus christ and we'll go i'm getting way ahead in romans but this is what does it right here this is what does it romans 10 verse 9 that if you confess with your mouth the lord jesus and believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead you will be saved if you do that if you believe in what paul says there you will be saved you are sealed with the holy spirit you have gone from death to life okay all right and we're going to talk about what it means to be predestined later. And, and so I don't want to get into that today, but we'll talk about that in detail. Um, so um, uh, it is in this quickened state that Paul, without ceasing, he says, remembers those in Rome in his prayers. Now, here's a question. He says, pray without ceasing in 1 uh, Thessalonians 5.16, I think, right? Um, does that mean that we don't take time to eat? Does that mean that we just stay on our knees and just mumble prayers to God all day? No, here, let me read this to you. Um, yeah, does this mean that Paul didn't eat, write letters, sleep, or do other activities which would keep him from praying for them? No. Rather, his life was a, lived in a constant state of prayer which occurred at any given moment. He could pray while doing any of these things. I pray while I'm driving all the time. 
I'm talking to the Lord all the time. Or when I'm taking out the garbage at the mall or cleaning the bathroom, I'm talking to the Lord all the time. I'm Lord, and then somebody will come to my mind. You know, like uh, somebody that uh, emailed me with their brother dying of cancer or something. And right then, I'll just be talking to the Lord about, Lord, be with that person. Let's see if we can get them cured. And if not, be a comfort to them. And that is what praying without ceasing is. It's not staying in a hotel room and locking the door and staying in there for the rest of your life and praying. Okay? That doesn't solve anything. We have lives to live. Praying without ceasing is living in the presence of the Spirit. Talking with him just as you would talk to Jim here or to Robert over there or to anybody else. Pat, same thing. Right? We, we uh, Just as sure as Pat is sitting in front of me right now, I am that sure that the Holy Spirit is listening when I pray to him. 100% sure. Okay, so going on. Um, uh, he could pray while doing any of these things, um, while doing them and not be found a liar. He, like each of us, should live in such a way that we are always connected to God. If we are, then we will simply pray as things uh, which need prayer come to mind. A good example of this connection is explicitly stated by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 21, which I cited to you. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold all. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, were those commands or were those exhortations? Exhortations. That's right. They're exhortations. If we don't do them, the only person that's going to suffer is us. Our relationship with the Lord is going to suffer. Everything about it will suffer. But Paul isn't saying, I command you to pray always. I don't command you to not quench the Spirit. He's saying it as an exhortation that we should live this life in the presence of the Lord. Uh, I've got a question and answer here from somewhere, and um, uh, but uh, the verbs here indicate that these things should be done now, that they are crucial to our spiritual life, and that we are to be active in pursuing them. This is the state that Paul tells us we should live in because it is the state he lived in and which he knew was pleasing to God. Okay? Um, let me... Uh, Got 10 minutes. Okay, um, Lindsay Disney is asking, when people ask, what if someone has not heard the, heard the gospel before they die? Then is Romans 1 verse 8 proof that everyone through the whole world will still, in fact, hear the gospel before dying? No, um, Romans 1 verse 8. Um, let me go back here. Um, not everybody's going to hear the gospel. And that's, she's asking, is this proof that, um, let me read that again so I get it right, um, before they die. Then is Romans 1 verse 8 a proof that everyone throughout the whole world will in fact hear the right gospel before dying? Then the answer is no. Um, let me go back to 1 8. It says, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. As I said, the Roman Empire was considered the whole world. And Paul writes elsewhere that the gospel has gone out. Have they not all heard, but not all have believed the message? That is speaking, first off, there's a general revelation of God, and we talked about that. And then you have the special revelation of God. There are people, even in America, surprisingly enough, that have never heard the gospel, and they never will hear the gospel because people don't present it to them. There are people that live on islands out in the Pacific that have never heard of Jesus, and those people are spiritually dead. They're born spiritually dead, and they will return to the earth spiritually dead, and they will be disconnected forever. The message it's gone out to the whole world is in the general sense that all of the world had heard of the Romans' uh, uh, faith, of their uh, steadfastness in Christ, but it doesn't mean that every single individual has heard of this message. And without this message, without this message, 
there is no salvation. And that's why Sunday we're going to have a uh, uh, missionary here. And he's going to give us a presentation in hopes that some people will give to him or maybe somebody will start making a monthly donation to help support him when he goes back overseas. Is because that's why we send these people. Who is it? Uh, Joel, oh, really? uh, jo- Joey Davis, Joel, Joel, is that Davis, Joel Davis. Joel Davis, thank you. Okay, and he'll be here Sunday. He's going to talk for just 10 minutes. And he's going to open us up. And that's why we send out mess- missionaries is because this message has not gone out to... Uh, not here, Here's an answer to uh, Lindsay's question that will help you. Not all alls in the Bible mean all. Okay, and I'm going to give you an example. We've got seven more minutes, and this will help you to understand this. Let me see if I can find these really quickly so that you understand um, uh, why not every every in the Bible means every and not all alls in the Bible mean all. I think what I want is probably Luke and the book of Mark, but it may be Matthew. Let me just really quickly go here and see if I can... um, uh, and I probably don't have it highlighted in this Bible because I, it, this is a Bible I use for another purpose. But um, uh, this is my preaching Bible, so I don't have a lot of notes and a lot of things in here. So it might take me a minute to find this. But um, it says that John the Baptist went out and um, uh, the people came to him uh, and he's walked by the sea. No, that's not John the Baptist. John the Baptist is, is out there and he's baptizing people. The multitude came together. No, that's Jesus. Um, uh, John the Baptist is out there. Anyway, I'm going to have to tell you what it says, and then I can get the verses if you want. But it says in one instance that all of uh, Judea and Samaria came to be baptized by him, right? Right? All of Judea and Samaria came to be baptized by John the Baptist. And then in another account, it says that the Pharisees were not baptized by him. So all does not mean all in that instance. So you have to be very careful when you use the word all in the Bible and say, well, see, all means all. It doesn't always mean all. It is in, uh, it, it's, we do it all the time in, in uh, English. We all use it all the time. That's right. We, but I don't do it all the time, but I do it all the time, right? It is a superlative quite often. It doesn't mean that every, every is every and all, alls are all. And so be careful when you do that. And that should answer that question is that not all people are going to hear the gospel. Not all people have heard the gospel. And that's why we send out people to do this wonderful thing called sharing the gospel. And we actually pay for them to do it. Um, no point in getting into another verse, but um, uh, uh, Zinzendorf. Anybody heard of uh, Count Zinzendorf? Okay, he was uh, in Germany. He uh, heard of Jesus. He gave his life to Christ. And he had a basically a commune where they, they lived, he and the Christians. It was called Herrenhut. And they, uh, you know, were uh, like, uh, I think Moravians, is that where the Moravians came from? Was from, from Zinzendorf. Okay, so they're, they're a group of people. What's that? Germany. Germany, that's right. And so they're a group of people that are, are following the Lord. They're being obedient to him. And he decided we are going to start having missionaries somewhere. And I'm going to get this wrong. Please don't use this as as an account of his life because it's been years since I read a book about him. But what he did is he had some people that uh, he had heard about over in, um, uh, you know, the Caribbean, somewhere in that area, somewhere in the Americas. And they'd never received the gospel. And he said to two of the people in there, guess what? You're going to be missionaries. And he gave them enough money to get to the boat. And he sent them off and they went. And that was it. That was that was their charge. You are going to be missionaries to these people, and you're going to tell them about Jesus, right? And they died. They got a, 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 a whatever one of those tropical diseases. They died, and guess what he did? You two are going over there, and you're going to be missionaries there. And they did, and they got the gospel out there. And then eventually, not accepting himself, he went 
to, I think it was not Haiti, but one of those islands like that where they speak French Creole. He went there as a missionary himself, and he uh, uh, started ministering to these people. And on the one-year anniversary of his first uh, year arriving there, he preached in their native language, French, Cre French Creole. And he preached to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. He learned enough of the language to be able to do that within the first year. And he did not accept himself from that. So, anyway, there are people that understand the need for missions. They understand the need for people to get out there because not all people are going to save, be saved and not all people have heard the gospel. And without it, they are doomed. So please, keep in your prayer the missionaries that your church supports. Keep in prayer the people that are out there that are doing their job and that they'll be a, a faithful witness because, you know, you'll read a lot of missionaries go overseas and they go native. And when that happens, that's the worst thing. That is the worst thing that could happen. That was very common with missionaries that went to the South Pacific, like Tahiti, I'm sorry, Tahiti, and these places where there were very loose morals. It wasn't a good thing to send a young, unmarried man to those places because it, 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 human nature takes over. So uh, anyway, I guess we're pretty close to being closed. So, um, Mark 1-5. What's that? Mark 1-5. Mark 1-5. Okay, you got that. Read that. And all the country of Judea was going out to All the country of Judea went out to be baptized by him. And then in Luke, the same account, it says, but the Pharisees were not baptized him because they blah, blah, blah. And so it's very clear that not all... Oh, same thing with the message of Jesus, right? When uh, Herod's, uh, Herod heard of the birth of Jesus, it says, and all Jerusalem was stirred. Well, that doesn't mean that every person in Jerusalem was stirred. It means that all of the people that were important in Jerusalem were stirred, and they came into Herod's palace, but not everybody was, you know, knock on the door, hey, they didn't do that. So not every, every is every, not all, or all is all, and you have to be careful with that when you use that as a, you know, a justification for your theology. So, um, because you spoke so much uh, towards the end of the class, we're going to let you pray us out. How's that, Burke? Make sure, yeah, well, you're the one that brought up the last verse, thank you. And so please pray loud enough so that they can hear you, okay? Good job. We uh, marvel at your word and the depth of it. We thank you that we can uh, learn some of it. And we just thank you for teacher. We thank you for the spirit that guides us and guides us. Help each of us, Lord, that we would depend upon you to be witnesses for you and have something to present to you. Guide each one. There is needs here among us, and in our country, there's great needs. And we ask your leading and guiding. Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Bert. Okay, wish you all a wonderful week, and uh, let me zoom this thing back so you can all wave your hands. Um, let me see. We got to go to break, and then yeah, yeah, wave a hand, and then if you do turn around, that's where the camera is. You can wave and say goodbye. We love you. Okay, have a wonderful week. All right.